Sometimes what he sees is, is hard to describe. Well, what better way to describe it? Uh, you know what? I'm not going to try to create this in my own words. I can partly, but I'm going to go back to Daniel 7 and use what God said. So I, I think that's the idea. So it's both and. Uh, some people think that the book of Revelation is only a literary product. Others think it's only a record of visions. It's both and. Welcome to The Blessed Podcast. I'm Nancy Guthrie, author of the newly released book, Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. The book of Revelation begins and ends with a promise that those who hear and keep what is written in it will be blessed. And we want that blessing, don't we? So we need to hear what this book has to say to us and live in light of it. On this podcast, I've been having conversations with people who can help us to hear it, to understand its message to us and help us reckon with what it's going to mean for us to live in light of that message. And my guest today is Dr. GK or Greg Beal. Dr. Beal, I've been so looking forward to having this conversation with you. Thank you for being willing to talk with us, have a conversation about Revelation. My pleasure. It's one of your favorite topics, isn't it? It is. Is it your is. commentary on Revelation? You've got, you've got the big, big honking commentary. Then you've got what you call the shorter commentary. That's still, I think, seven hundred pages. Um, is that commentary on Revelation? Would that be your biggest book? Most pages? Um, have- let's see. Uh, the big commentary would be. I do have a New Testament biblical theology that was around maybe ten, yeah. hundred, yeah, maybe eleven hundred pages. So mm-hmm. yeah. But I know, uh, it's interesting, as I've talked to different people uh, working on this uh, Revelation project, we, we always compare, like, you know, what are your sources? Who are you going to? And Beal is always on the list. <laughs> it certainly has been for me. So Dr. Beal is now a New Testament professor at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Dallas. Uh, he's taught at Westminster Theological Seminary, Wheaton College Graduate School, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, Grove City College. You mentioned your book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, The Unfolding of the Old Testament in the New. And probably apart from your Revelation commentary, that's probably your book that's been most profoundly helpful to me. Um, it, it's interesting to me in terms of talking about Revelation, though, as I, as I look at where you went to school I mean, you've got a PhD from Cambridge, but you graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary in 1976. And I'm not sure that I knew that about you, but as I think about talking to you about Revelation, I find that completely fascinating. And listeners, if you wonder why I find that fascinating, maybe Dr. Buell can enlighten you in terms of uh, Dallas Seminary and its history in terms of its interpretation of Revelation. But I just wonder, how has that shaped how you approach the book of Revelation? Shaped me? Well, first of all, I think I should say that uh, that was a very unique time when I went. The professors there were uh, very good. S. Lewis Johnson, Bruce Waltke, Haddon Robinson, a fellow by the name of uh, Alan Ross, who was younger at the time. He now teaches at a theological seminary in Alabama, Beeson School of Divinity. Edwin Bloom, and a lot of unique people were there at the time. They were very good. I really learned to 
trust in the Bible there. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I, I, I did before I went there, but uh, I really learned the doctrine of inerrancy there. Mm-hmm. I learned how to exegete there. Mm-hmm. Now, halfway through, I became what I would call reformed soteriologically, which mm-hmm. meant that I, I, I believe that it's only by the grace of God that you're saved and uh, that, that, that one is elected, that sort of thing. But I did not become reformed in terms uh, of eschatology at the time in, in Dallas Seminary. In fact, you couldn't, if you taught there and if you were a student there, you had to believe in the notion that there was going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ at the end when God would deal with Israel again. And uh, the church age was a parenthesis. And once the church is raptured, then God will deal with Israel. Christ will come back, and there'll be this thousand-year reign. So I, I did believe that. In fact, I taught that early on in Bible studies when I was at Dallas Seminary. And I began halfway through and toward the end, I began to study a lot of the old and the new. And I began to see that the kingdom prophecies in the Gospels were beginning fulfillment, whereas I was taught that that fulfillment was put off until after the church was raptured and God began to deal with Israel and would set up his kingdom. So it would be fulfilled in a future millennium. But I began to see those prophecies. They, they were being fulfilled. So I came to a position that, that some would call historical premillennialism, which is that the church and Israel are not necessarily separate, that the kingdom began with the first coming of Christ, uh, it, was, it was a position uh, popularized to a great extent in, in biblical circles by uh, George Eldon Ladd, historic premillennialism. So I got under the wire and was able to graduate because I was still premillennial. Yes. And, then, and then a few years later, uh, I began to see, hmm, could this idea of the beginning kingdom in the church age be true of Revelation 20? And I began to think, Yes. And so that caused me to come into a position historically known as amillennialism, which I don't like that term because the alpha means no. It's an alpha privative, no millennium. And I believe there's a millennium. I just believe it's spiritual and it's beginning now. It's not something put off to the end that's purely physical. So that's sort of a shorthand thing. I didn't really have a lot of in-depth interpretative evidence for that view until I began to teach on the book of Revelation. My first year of college or second year I was teaching, and, and then as I began to do the commentary, that sort of thing, and then I became more, how can I say it, entrenched in, in that view. So I don't call my view amillennialism. I, I call it already and not yet millennialism. That's, okay. That's my view, or inaugurated millennialism. I mean, but if somebody presses you, will you say, okay, yes, I fall in the category of amillennial, it's, it's but a, you just prefer to call it the exactly. already and not yet. Exactly. So because I'll, it I'll, better describes. I'll say historically, yes, that's that's what I am, but it's not a good, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate term. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, Greg, as I was working on Blessed, experiencing the promise of the book of Revelation, I was wanting to create a resource for, I'm thinking about, I think about small groups who want to study the book of Revelation. I remember when I interviewed you about Revelation, probably six or seven years ago, you made the statement that if you, if you ask, you know, people in the pew, what's the one book you want to study? They all want to study Revelation. But if you ask pastors what they don't want to teach, it's Revelation. But I, I also think, you know, people tend to avoid 
Revelation because they're afraid they can't understand it. They know that there are all of these different views and that a lot of people find it confusing. And in our day and age where there is so much division in the church, so many, so many things it seems to argue about, I think that a lot of people, they don't want to go to Bible study and argue. And so maybe they don't want to choose the book of Revelation. And yet I wanted to create a resource for people to study the book of Revelation. First of all, because we want everything God has to say to us. We don't want there to be any part of the Bible that we say, oh, I don't need to know that. And whereas so many people think of Revelation as something solely about the future, solely about the return of Christ, it seems to me that Revelation is so much about how you and I are to live right now as we wait for Christ to come and establish his kingdom in all of its fullness. It's, it's, it's so much about right now. Uh, it's this call to, to patient endurance and to refuse to compromise with the world as we wait. I like to call the book of Revelation, uh, it is not just a futurology, but it's a redemptive historical psychology, uh, a psychological framework within which the church is to think. Tell me more about what you mean. Historical. Uh, what I mean is that, yes, this book throughout has references to the future. There's no doubt about that. But throughout, it also has references to the present, to exactly what you were talking about, how the Christian is to be faithful in the midst of an ungodly world that uh, is pressuring it to conform. For example, in Revelation 2, a woman by the name of Jezebel, who's either a woman or the leader of a movement that's called the Jezebel movement, probably an individual prophetess. She's, it says, leading people astray by causing them to eat food, sacrifice to idols, and, and to fornicate. Well, the fornicate is probably figurative there. It means to come into an intimate, illicit relationship with idols uh, in the book of Revelation and actually in the Old Testament. So why do I bring that up? Because in chapter 17, that's a lot about the future and the destruction of Babylon the Great, she's presented as a whore there. And if you look carefully at how she's presented, she is depicted according to the outlines of Jezebel, the false prophetess in the Old Testament, the wife of uh, Ahab. And so what are we saying? Well, Jezebel has infiltrated the church in Thyatira, and what that means is Babylon the Great has in, in, infiltrated. The world has infiltrated. And so al already we see in the letters that what is to be future, the existence of Babylon the Great, is already something that is present. And, um, and that reminds me, too, just a, a little issue that I have. Again and again, when you find people preaching on the book of Revelation, it's the letters. Well, I'm doing a sermon series on Revelation. Oh, really? Yeah, it's chapters one to three. Because as you say, they're afraid, I'm speaking of pastors here, mm -hmm. they're afraid to go further. And this is so much like Paul, for example, the letters. So at any rate, I, I really am I'm happy you wrote a commentary on the whole book, and uh, which is an encouragement for people mm -hmm. to read and study the whole book. Well, I hope they will. As I think about those who might be leading a group through the book of Revelation, 
um, I think they may have a fear. And maybe I think that because I have the same fear. And I think it's something that you have dealt with a lot. And so maybe you can give us some input on it. And that is, my assumption is that there are a lot of people who have been shaped by dispensational premillennial ideas. They might not even have never heard the term dispensational. So if you ask them, are you dispensational? They wouldn't even necessarily know what you're talking about. Right. But if they're like me, you know, I grew up in a household. I can remember seeing that late great planet Earth book yeah. when it appeared at our house, yeah. right? And you know, go, seeing a thief in the night numerous times. I grew up in a ministry and in a church. Once again, I never heard the word dispensational, but it was just the generally assumed faithful way of understanding and reading the Bible. So it was interesting to me. You talked about your time at at Dallas Seminary, how you came to really accept the inerrancy and authority of yeah. the Bible. And that was that was a big strength of it, right? Yes, um, yeah. But I, I think for a lot of that era, I, I mean, my assumption was anybody who takes the Bible seriously believes this way, and anyone who doesn't believe this way uh, is, is liberal, doesn't take the Bible seriously. So as we prepare to teach through Revelation, I think we have to assume there are people in our group that we're teaching that they have built their assumptions about the book of Revelation based on that a similar kind of history to what I've described. Without so, understanding what theological framework they're really holding. So, so how, how have you dealt with that? Because I know you've been in some dispensational settings where you've been teaching. Uh, and, and I think particularly, are there particular aspects of revelation that are going to come up that you're going to have to deal with, with someone in the group who has deeply held dispensational beliefs? Well, I think first of all, if we're speaking of a pastor who's preaching or teaching Sunday school series, or we're speaking of someone who teaches Bible studies, and if this is someone who does it a lot, I think when you're in other parts of the New Testament, it's really important to talk about what I call inaugurated eschatology, that the latter days have begun. That means then you go back to the Old Testament. Well, what were the latter days about? Well, uh, among the high points are that the kingdom was to begin. Of course, the Messiah would come and he would rule over a kingdom and there would be a new creation. And, and to explain these things, because the traditional framework of dispensationalism would say that the kingdom hasn't been inaugurated. But if you can see it elsewhere in the New Testament, and especially when you see elsewhere in the New Testament that what was prophesied about Israel is fulfilled in the church. You see Old Testament quotations in, with Jesus and Paul, and uh, they're, they're seen as fulfilled and applied to and in the church. So that's important if you're in an ongoing ministry of teaching, whether Bible studies or pastor. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, you can begin to interpret it in that context. Say, well, look, this is no different. For example, just take chapter 1 and verse 6. He made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. That's repeated in chapter 5 and verse 10. And in the millennial passage in chapter 20, I believe verses 4 and 6. And so what does that mean? Well, it's very clear that the church in chapter 1, 6, and 5, 10 is already come to be 
what Israel was supposed to be, because that is an illusion everyone admits to Exodus 19.6. And Israel never fulfilled that, that they never were a kingdom and priests. And because they couldn't do it on their own, and, and God didn't give them the grace to do it. And finally, the phrase there, he made them. In fact, my wife was pointing this out to me. Look at that phrase. He made them. They couldn't be that otherwise. He made them to be a kingdom and priest. So the church has taken on the commission of Israel. And that's repeated in chapter 5 and verse 10. And then that phrase is repeated in the millennial passage. At the very least, we can say what the millennium is talking about, believers reigning as kings and priests, has begun Mm -hmm. in the first century. And so, so one thing we need to do is, in our broader teaching, when we're not even to Revelation yet, is what I hear you saying, is that we need to be making sure people understand this inaugurated eschatology, that uh, when the king came into uh, creation in yes. his first coming and said, yes. the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes. There we see the beginning yes. of the fulfillment yeah. of the Old Testament prophecies. Yeah. Yeah. So you begin to prepare people if you can, if they can see this is the broader teaching of the New Testament. I mean, one could still say, well, Revelation's different. It's at the very end. It's just giving us only the future and so forth and so on. But what I've just said shows, well, no, it really, you know, early on the church is a kingdom of priests twice, and then later even in the millennium it is to be. So even if you take that as future, Okay, let's say you take it only as future, you still have to see it as having begun. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really key to set the framework in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine another key thing you're going to have to deal with is whether or not, as you read through the book of Revelation, that we're reading a chronological depiction of events right. in the future or if we're reading something that's very different, uh, we'll use the word recapitulation, or yes. we might just say, are we seeing some repeated right. cycles that actually cover the period of time, uh, incarnation through the death, yeah. life, death, resurrection, ascension right. of Jesus, and beyond? Yeah. How, how would you put that? Yeah. How, yeah. And, and think in terms of that skeptic perhaps with the dispensational right. mindset. How are we going to communicate this yep, to them? Yep. You find that these visions are typically introduced by, after these things I saw, after these things I saw, after these things I saw. They often have a new series of visions introduced that way. And so some will say, well, okay, we've seen the seals, the judgments of the seals. And then you begin to get after these things I saw let us say, with the trumpets. So you would assume, well, the trumpets come in time after the seals. And then, well, later in the book, you get the bowls. Well, they must come in time after the trumpets. Many see that as a chronology of the future. The problem with that, as I begin to look into it, is that after these things I saw, it's just talking about the order of visions that John saw not the order of the history of how those visions would occur. That's really important. If I had a dream last night and I was reporting it to you, I would say, well, in high school, this happened. Then in grade school, this happened. Then in college, this happened. And I remember when I was in kindergarten, this happened. Mm. I'm recounting my visions in a topical order 
uh, not chronologically, in order to make a particular point, because maybe I'm going from most important to least important or whatever. That, I think, is what John is doing. For example, chapter 4, verse 1, after these things I saw. So many people will say, well, that's chapter 4, verse 1, after the church age. In other words, what John's about to see in chapters 4, 5, and following is after the events of the church age. No, because 1 to 3 is really a big, huge vision of the Son of Man Mm -hmm. who's speaking to the churches. And so after that vision, I saw another vision. 4, 1, and following isn't. Well, the events that are about to be seen are after the events of the church age. That is huge to understand, I think. This is just the order of the visions that he saw. Now, to further establish that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are not chronologically after one another, but probably overlap in time, so that they're looking at the same epoch and period, but from different vantage points. My wife gives the example, if you're in a room, maybe you see the wall there and then the other about that part, and then what's behind me. and So it's different perspectives at the same time, but on the same thing, on the same room. I think that's true. Now, there are a number of reasons why I hold that those visions are not chronological, but overlap in meaning. You use the word recapitulation. We could say they recapitulate one another, they repeat one another, but they're not just saying the same thing. If you go to the Old Testament and you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, a lot of which are apocalyptic Old Testament books, mm-hmm. Daniel. The visions there are not in chronological sequence. They're recapitulation. They're, they're, they're going over and over again, or just the narratives in Jeremiah. Maybe that's why the prophets are challenging for us to read too. I mean, if we think about the books people avoid, I think a lot of time it's the prophets because we like things to be chronological and the prophets don't cooperate with us Mm -hmm. and neither does the prophet John. And Daniel is among those that recapitulate and Daniel is very, very influential in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. But so is Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think they're both. Those are the two dominant books that influence the book of Revelation. And they are recapitulations. Mm -hmm. They don't present things in chronological order. Well, one of the points you made in your commentary on this topic, I think is probably the most convincing argument for that. And that is, as you read through, if you think it's chronological, then the final judgment happens again and again and again. (laughs) And even when it says that all have been judged, they emerge again, right? And there's another final judgment. And we just know that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. So the seals end with judgment. So then when you start the trumpets, okay, well, if we've just finished with judgment, then we've got to be in the new creation now. But all of a sudden, there are all these trials, all all these tribulations, so it can't be. It has to go back. Mm -hmm. And the same then when you go to the bowls. Mm -hmm. Now, a third point, I think. By the way, that is a huge point you've just made. Now, the, the response to that is, oh, this judgment is just an anticipation of the future. It's not really recounting it, even though what's preceded in the seals are really trials of the final tribulation. But when it recounts final judgment, that's just a parenthetical anticipation. And so then when we hit the trumpets, we continue on with the final tribulation. Oh, and then at the end of the trumpets, we get another reference to judgment. That's just an anticipation. It's not an actual event that you know, we're recording. And then finally, at the end of the book, you get that. I just don't think that that pans out well. I don't think that that's convincing. Now, another reason that I hold that they are uh, recapitulations is that in the trumpets and the bowls, they are 
almost consecutively based on the Exodus plagues. I mean, both of them. So they've got to be related in some way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the best answer to that is that they probably overlap. Uh, Revelation one nineteen, you point out as being kind of a, a key to the whole book. And it kind of relates to what we're talking about a little bit in terms of understanding time frames. Would you talk to us a little bit about that? I will, but now we're really going to get down into some, can I say, some in-depth interpretative spade work. We're up for it. You've asked me. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Now, Revelation 119 says, write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. Now, the person who takes the book of Revelation as a chronological sequence sees this as proof of their view. In other words, write what you've seen, this son of man vision. Then what is? Write what is the things of the church age. Okay, that's what is. And then the final uh, statement, and, and write about the things which will take place after these things, that's after the church age, chapter 4 and following. So you have a nice reference to past, Son of Man vision. The present, the church age, the seven churches, and then the future, chapters four and following. So on the surface, that that really sounds good. And as I began to look at it, one of the things that struck me was that the last phrase, the things which shall take place after these things, that is an allusion to Daniel 2, 28, 29, and 45. Again, I refer to my wife a lot, but I'll refer to her again. I'll always say, oh, this is an allusion to Daniel. She said, okay, so what difference does that make? Okay, so that's become actually a transition in all my teaching. I'll point out an Old Testament allusion, and i say, the Dorinda principle is this, so what difference does that make? The difference is this. In Daniel 2, Daniel says to the king, when he sees this huge statue that's struck by a rock and it crumbles, and then the kingdom of God is set up eternally, Uh, the king doesn't uh, know what it meant. He just knows he had this dream and he's troubled. So Daniel tells him what it meant. He said, O king, God has revealed to you what must come to pass in the latter days. Then he repeats it. Next verse. God has revealed to you what must come to pass after these things. What must come to pass after these things is a synonym of what must come to pass in the latter days. Now, the Daniel vision, it's true, that was something about the future. However, here, Daniel is clearly seen as being fulfilled in the present. Why do I say that? Because the Son of Man vision is presented in verse 13. I saw a Son of Man. Jesus has begun to fulfill the Son of Man, Daniel 7 vision. And furthermore, chapter 1 and uh, verse 5 says... He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, which makes it clear the Son of Man has begun that rule. So when we come to that phrase in chapter 1, verse 19, what must come to pass after these things, we could paraphrase it. The things which will take place in the latter days. What are those things? Well, according to Daniel, it was the, one of the high points was Daniel 7, the rule of the Son of Man. That's begun. So I would say that that phrase, what must come to pass after these things, which really means what must come to pass in the latter days, that that is a fully packed phrase. That's an already and not yet phrase. And so this isn't just a reference then to the exclusive future. So we get the same phrase again in chapter 4, 
and verse 1 at the end of it says, I will show you what must come to pass after these things. I think what that means, I'll show you what must come to pass in the already and not yet latter days. So it makes sense that you're going to get visions that deal with the not yet, the future, and things that are also present. I think the key is let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. And you're demonstrating how important throughout Revelation it is to to make those connections between who he's drawing from in regard yeah. to Daniel yeah. and Ezekiel, because those really guide us in interpreting. Yeah, in fact, already we've had a reference to Daniel 2, 28, 29, and 45 in the programmatic verse, chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he communicated it by symbols by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now, that also, in fact, even the English Bibles, as well as the Greek Bible, will have in the margin Daniel 2, 28, 29, and 45. Because the word revelation, the word communicate by symbols, and the phrase, what must come to pass, is clearly uniquely mm-hmm. found only in those verses in Daniel and here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, this is an allusion back to Daniel mm-hmm. 2, but so what difference does that make? Well, listen, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must take place. Now, Daniel said in the latter days, John says shortly, shortly, which is further defined at the end of verse 3, the time mm-hmm. is near. near. That, that, that phrase actually refers to not just something that's near in time, but it's just barely beginning. <laughs> and so... We already have a reference that things are just barely beginning. They're not just around the corner. Yes, they are, but they're just barely beginning. When Jesus says the time is near, the kingdom, in Mark uh, 1.15, he's not saying, oh, uh, it's about to come. It's beginning. Mm -hmm. It's beginning, but there's more to come. That's the idea here. And in fact, the end of verse 3 may even allude to Mark 1.15 when it says the time is is near. I want to go back to a phrase in there, and you're reading from what translation? That's New American Standard, but okay. I'm also really, I'm, you know, I'm reading really the Greek. Okay, all right. He says in there, going to communicate through symbols. Here's a question I've been tr- I've been wrestling with a little bit, and I, I'm almost not even sure I can articulate the question, but I'm sure you've thought this through. So John, I take him at his word. He has shown these things. Mm-hmm. Right, he he sees these. He visually sees these things, but then the way he records them, it would seem to me that he's been so filled with words and images from Daniel and Ezekiel Mm -hmm. and Isaiah that he draws from that language to articulate what he has seen. One of my questions is, when he writes, I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, Mm -hmm. what did he see? Did he see something that looks like a lamb? Mm -hmm. Or when he says, I saw a lamb, is he already, is he the one choosing to insert that symbolism to describe what he saw? Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. No, I think he actually saw a lamb. Now, I have a friend who's very sophisticated in all areas. He's a mechanical engineer, went to MIT, makes airplanes. He believes that Jesus was an actual lamb. 
okay? An actual lamp. I think that's a little too literal, so I think this is a symbol, but he does see a lamb, just as he sees a whore riding a, a red beast in, in chapter 17. He sees it. I don't think he's injecting that. But what can happen is, I think that God presents visions to John that God intends he's drawing from the Old Testament. Those visions are from the Old Testament because they're beginning fulfillment and also they're going to be fulfilled. So you, you see some of the same things and developments of it. So that when John goes down to write, he does write what he saw, but he may go back to those same passages and he may fill out a little bit under inspiration to further explain what he saw because sometimes what he sees is, is hard to describe. Well, what better way to describe it? Uh, you know what? I'm not going to try to create this in my own words. I can partly, but I'm going to go back to Daniel 7 and use what God said. So I, I think that's the idea. So it's both and. Uh, some people think that the book of Revelation is only a literary product. Others think it's only a record of visions. It's both and. Okay, well, that, that's really helpful to me. I appreciate it. Let's close this way. I'm going to read this statement you wrote in the introduction to your Revelation commentary. You said, the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement, which I guess even when I see that, I think maybe a lot of people don't assume that about Revelation, right? To bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes, even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination. It's the Bible's cry of victory, for in it, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, is revealed the final victory of God over the forces of evil. As such, it is an encouragement, there use it again, to God's people to persevere in the assurance that their final reward is certain, and to worship and glorify God despite trials and despite temptations to march to the world's drumbeat. So maybe some people really are mystified that, that we would call Revelation encouraging. Why do you make that case? Chapter 14 and verse 4 says that they followed the lamb wherever he goes. They're living a cruciform life. He, he suffered, and they need to realize that their life is no different than the lamb's. So they're going to go through suffering. But if you remember, chapter 5 says, I saw a lion who was from the tribe of Judah, root of Jesse, who conquered then all of a sudden, next verse, and I saw a lamb having been slain. By the way, the translations often have, I saw a lamb as though having been slain. Bad translation. It's, he actually saw a lamb slain, not as if. So I saw a lamb having been slain. So how does the lion, and that's from Genesis 49, a prophecy of the Messiah's victory as a lion over the forces of evil. Uh, how is that accomplished through his suffering on the cross that then is inextricably linked by resurrection. He, he got his reward, and so we're no different. If we're really believers, we follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and in the midst of it, we really do reign. That's why chapter 1, verse 6 is important. He made us to be a kingdom and priests. And what does it mean to be a priest? Well, it means to be a mediator. That's one of the things it certainly means. Another thing that it means, Romans 12:1, is that we present ourselves as a sacrifice. And I think those go together. As we are suffering, as we give sacrifices of thanksgiving for it, 
and that we're following the Lamb, then we are being a testimony to the world. Just as Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of the gospel, so our suffering and our trust in Christ during that suffering, which is empowered by spiritual resurrection life in us now, already and not yet, that becomes a mediating priestly activity to the world. The encouragement comes from the fact that God is using us to communicate the gospel to the world. And that, that's encouraging. The further encouragement is, is that we really do have that resurrection life now. Even those who die in Revelation 20, it says they came to life. When they died, that's ironic. I think what happens is the believer already has that life. When they die, they go into a further escalation of resurrection life. And then at the final age, that's completed with a full resurrection body. Well, may we live out of what he has made us to be, to be those priests of his kingdom, uh, mediating the gospel to the world around us. And Revelation is clear to us that may be very costly to us. I think about Revelation 11, we might get trampled in the process, but we're given this solid confidence that that won't be the end of the story. Thank you so much, Dr. Beal. Thanks for all the work that you've done on Revelation. I know I'm not the only person who was maybe given a little bit of courage to tackle Revelation because they knew that they had a Greg Beal commentary on Revelation on their shelf that would answer a lot of difficult questions. So I thank you for helping me. It really did help me with my book. This has been The Blessed Podcast, a Crossway podcast hosted by Nancy Guthrie, the author of Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast series. I hope that it has been encouraging to you, helpful to you, and that you will find yourself truly, deeply, eternally blessed. Thank you.